Welcome, everybody, to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you're here with us uh, in the person, and of course, uh, our online community as well. Uh, hey, listen, uh, this is Vision Weekend at Encounter, and this is a time that we kind of pause the typical uh, message series uh, that we do and, and just try to like gather our hearts, our hearts um, gather uh, around our mission and to do kind of a, like, a, like a check-in uh, to make sure that we're all in alignment around what God has asked us to be and to step into his preferred future for us. Uh, and, and honestly, like there's a part of me that Kind of, like, kind of struggles with this because I think like like vision and mission and all of this stuff seems so like corporate, right? It, like it belongs on some kind of like glossy brochure or a business card or something like that in, in like the church world. And I like I kind of wrestle with that until I came across this like definition and I thought it was so good. I thought it was so good because it's it speaks into like my journey with Jesus, like on a personal level, and I thought it could help on your journey with God as well. So uh, vision is, uh, is just this. It's a mental picture of what could be fueled by what should be. And I thought that was so good, right? Keeping that mental picture in mind about what could be and then fueled by what should be in the world. When we start to think about vision, we start to think about like, like, um, like imagination. And that's, that's what I want for you. Let's to leave this place knowing what encounter is about and being excited about the vision that God has cast for this church. But also you, your life, like the person, the disciple that God has asked you to be and to step into that vision as well, that imagination as well. That, that's all that vision is. It's, it's the imaginative power that God gave every single one of us. And you have it. Like you might be imagining a vacation next month. That's vision. You can see this time that's coming and, and working towards that. It's imagination. You can, you can see a, a time coming up, maybe next week, Saturday, that you can sleep in. It's imagination. It's powerful. If you have small children at home, then that imagination is like, hey, someday they're going to move away to college and we can finally sleep in or finally finish that conversation that we started about 20 years ago, right? Like, like that's the power of imagination. It's the vision that God gave every single person. Maybe your imagination, maybe your vision is just, a, is just to go outside and to put some burgers on the grill for lunch this afternoon. That's vision. That's imagination that God, that God has given you. Maybe you're just trying to finish the semester. Like, not even well, just finish it, right? It's been a heck of a year, so you're just trying to, like, make it all the way through. That's imagination. That's the vision of what could be. Maybe you're saving up and trying to buy a house, right? That's the, that's the imagination. That's the vision. That's the power of what could be. Now, we're talking about fueling with that with what should be. When God comes alongside that imagination and God fills that imagination with his purposes, then we start to get a sense of this God-sized dream, that's out there, and it's just this incredibly powerful thing that I can't wait to, to share with you today. Um, there's a, uh, a, a quote by Helen Keller, who is a very well-known uh, human rights advocate. She was famously blind and deaf from the age of two on, and she talks about uh, vision and mission uh, this way. She said, uh, the, most, uh, the most pathetic person is somebody who has sight but no vision. And that's pretty savage from Helen Keller, right? But, but what, what I think she's like means behind that, and not, not like picking on anybody, but, but it's a hard life. It's a, it's a hard life because God has, has called us to step into some areas. God has, has nudged us and led us to step into some areas that without that imagination in front of us all the time, without that vision of the end goal in front of us, when it, when it gets tough, like we get to quitting. Like we just want to give up. We just want to go home. 
especially in the difficult seasons of life, when we can't connect it to something bigger, something broader. Like, just think about, some, think about something for just a minute. A job. This guy goes to work every hour, every day, every week. And all he's doing is he's putting sand inside of a sandbag. That's it. On repeat. Every day. Every hour. Sand in a sandbag. And that has got to be the most mundane, the most monotonous, most tedious kind of work there has to be. That's the only thing that he does. You think, what keeps the guy fueled by putting sand in the bag again and again and again, on repeat. Or if you can zoom out just a little bit, you can see the why he's putting sand in a bag. Because he lives in a, flood, in a flood zone. And he lives on a river. And he knows there's a storm coming. He knows there's a storm season coming. And he's putting sand in the sandbag to protect his house. More than that, he's putting sand in a bag to protect the people living inside his house. Even more than that, he, he's putting sand in a sandbag so that his neighbors who aren't physically able to put sand in sandbags, he can protect their homes and their people as well, the, the, the vulnerable people around. And, and that's why every day he goes into work and he puts sand in a bag with a smile on his face because he knows. He knows it's part, it's part of a vision. It's part of this mission. It's part of this much grander purpose that God has called him to step into to take care of the least of these. And that's what keeps him going every single day. He doesn't, he doesn't give up. And we all have that. We have those, those grander visions, those grander purposes in mind. And we start to lose those. We start to live that, that kind of like pathetic life that Helen Keller said because we just give up when it gets hard because there's nothing pushing us forward. Another example, and I, I, I could get into, into some trouble with this, right? Especially like with kids watching online and, and, and in the room is, is if I'm just totally honest with you, broccoli does not taste good. It, just, it doesn't. And some of you kids are going to be like, hey, listen, Pastor Dirk said I don't have to eat broccoli. Just so you know, I didn't say that. I just admitted that broccoli on its own, without that sweet Midwest nectar called ranch dressing, it's just, it's chalky, right? It has a weird aftertaste. It, does, it doesn't taste good. But you know, I eat broccoli because it's good for me, right? Because I'm not giving up when it gets difficult in the mundane, in the boring, in the tedious, in the difficult seasons, I don't give up eating broccoli because I have a vision of a healthy life. I have a vision of maybe 15, 20 years from now, of being able to, to play with my kids, being able to play with my grandkids, right? I have this picture in mind about what my life is going to be like. And so I just, I'm going to eat it now, and I'm going to move through because it's good for me. That's the power of vision to keep us going, especially, especially when, it, when we want to give up. That vision is this mental picture of what could be fueled by what should be. Some of you go, you know what could be? And you know what probably should be? What could be and what should be is me like getting out of, getting out of this financial mess that I'm in. I think that, that God would have me pay off some of these purchases, pay off some of this debt that I'm carrying around because I can't live a generous life as I'm holding and I'm carrying all this stuff behind me. And so I'm saying yes to God. I'm being obedient to God. I'm going to try to get out of this mess that I have made. And you know what is involved in that? A tedious level of saying no. Just again and again. Do you want to go out to eat? No. Do you want to go for coffee? No. Do you want to go shopping together? No. Should we, go, should we purchase the thing and I'll go into it? No. No. 
No. And you start to sound like a boring person. You're like, I'm not a boring person. I'm just, I'm saying no today so that I can say yes to something far better, the vision that I have of what could be fueled by what should be. So I believe that God is, is calling every single person, every single one of us. Some of us are in the room, belong to the church. God has a purpose. He has a vision for the church. He has a purpose. He has a vision for you individually too. We just, we just got to know, we got to figure out like what that thing is. Like what is he asking you to do? What's the vision? What's the purpose that God has for you? Where do you even go to figure out what that is? And so we're going to, together, we're going to go to a place in the Bible that I think is probably uh, the best vision, mission, purpose book that we ever see. I think it's in the, in the book, the biblical book of Nehemiah. You can find that um, by looking it up in your Bibles. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. And we start off in just Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. And we're introduced to some characters. Listen to how the story goes. Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I, this is Nehemiah talking, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Okay, what in the world, what in the world do we just read around here? Uh, what we've got is Nehemiah is living in exile. He's living in a foreign nation. A long time ago, his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people in Israel, was attacked by a neighboring nation, a much more powerful nation, Babylon. And in 587 B.C., that city was defeated, was destroyed. The walls were torn down. People were taken away. Anybody who had any kind of a skilled trade, right? Carpenters, plumbers, electricians. Not ele electricity wasn't event. See, that was the test. We're just trying to pay attention. Electricians were not taken. Other tradespeople, though, anybody who had a skill or had some kind of education, they were taken into exile, into Babylon. Well, eventually, Babylon was taken over by Persia, and as the history goes, King Cyrus in Persia said after 70 years of exile, listen, some of you aren't from around here. What are you still doing here? And he allowed the people, wherever they were from, to go back to wherever they were from. This was an answer to prayer for the Jewish people. And lots of them left Babylon, left that city, and, and, and now Persia, to go back home. Not everybody. In fact, most people stayed in Persia which is a whole different message another time about how comfort kills calling, but, but it doesn't matter. Many of them stayed. Some went back home. Now, Nehemiah is one of those that stayed. He worked directly for the king. He had an important role. He stays in Babylon. He stays in, in, in what's now Persia. And then, and then way, back, uh, way back home, one of his brothers, as we just read, visits Jerusalem, and then comes back. Nehemiah has the opportunity. He's going to ask him, how, how is it going? Like, you, you got to do it. You got to go back home. Tell me, tell me everything that you observed. Tell me about how it's going. And his close friend and his brother and others in verse 3 reply. They said to me, they said to Nehemiah, well, those, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates burned with fire. It's not good. When he asks, how are things going back in Jerusalem, and the response is, well, among those who survived, 
And, and he goes on to paint this picture, almost like, like, a, like a post-apocalyptic scene, right? It's like bombed out and burned out. It's destruction and desolation. Everything is destroyed. There's nothing left. It's important that he highlights that the walls are down and the, the gates are, are all burned up. It's important to note that because it's like, this was their, this was their fortification. This is, if, this is their protection of anything that they could create that had any kind of a value. And so what they had without any kind of like protection or any kind of like lock for their store of goods is essentially turns into like an open and free ATM for anybody else to just drop in and, and to just take. Especially one of these guys just to the north in, in Samaria, Sanballat his name is, um, this, this neighboring king, he looks at Jerusalem as his own personal piggy bank. Every time they would make anything worth taking, somebody would just come in and take it. And this meant goods, this meant food for growing, this meant people. Any time there was worth anything taking, they would just help themselves to it. And so Nehemiah sees this. He sees how bad things have gotten. And it takes a toll on him. Verse 4. And when I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He sits down. It breaks his heart. He sits down and he weeps. When he says he, he, he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed for, for some days, he means a lot of days. This went on for four months. And he starts, he starts to get a vision. He starts to get a purpose. He starts to imagine what could be fueled by what should be. People shouldn't have to fear their neighbors. People shouldn't have to fear their stuff getting taken. People shouldn't have to fear their families and their children getting taken. That shouldn't be. And so he starts to imagine this future, this picture that could be where the people are safe. He starts to imagine that this picture where the kids can play outside in the streets and, and, and they, don't, they don't worry and they're not afraid. But where it is right now is a, is a far cry from that. And it breaks his heart. I, I want to highlight that. I want to highlight that about God-sized dreams often come not from a mountaintop, but from the valley of a broken heart. I want, I want to uh, do something kind of unusual um, for us at Encounter. Uh, I, I don't love like splitting people kind of into, into like age groups, um, but I want to talk directly to those of you who are maybe like 35 and under. And the reason for that is uh, you, maybe more than others in the room, you have been misled. And I want to I clarify that. Because from a very young age, you were told your God-sized dream is going to be found by following your passion. And passion often gets described, or is, passion is often understood as excitement, as enthusiasm. Like whatever lights you up, that's your passion. Chase that dream. Chase that passion. That reason 
That, it, that you slide over out of bed in the morning and jump, spring right out of bed. That's your thing. Follow that. I want to introduce you, I guess, to the most passionate being that I know. The most passionate being that I think is currently roaming around on this earth is my good friend's seven-pound hypoallergenic puppy. It is a ball of passion and excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, you can't hold this thing back. You go over, and it just means you. Tail wagging, it's excited, it's passionate. It is wildly enthusiastic. There's like a bucket of toys, when you just throw them across the house, that thing tears off running. They've got like the hard floors, so the dog is just sliding, bumping into chairs, bumping into couches, bumping into people. It doesn't care. Its passion carries it through. It's just so excited about like every part of life. And it accomplishes almost nothing, right? Outside of being adorable, get that straight, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change, it doesn't move the needle of the world. It's just passion. And so what I like to do is like to try to like, like replace passion with purpose. Because passion is not going to carry you through on the sandbags and the broccoli and the saying no again and again. Passion alone won't cut it. Purpose, mission, vision that will and that comes not from a wild mountaintop enthusiastic time of jumping out of bed in the morning that comes that comes from God revealing his heart his broken heart for you I mean, just to like like highlight that that difference passion is a good word passion initially it came from the latin word passio which means to suffer deeply like we got that deep emotion and we kind of we turned it into excitement and into enthusiasm, but, but, but passion as its root means a broken heart. It means to suffer. Some of you, you know the movie, you, you've maybe seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Wait, let me tell you, what drove Jesus to his death in the Gospels was not an excitement, was not an enthusiasm for a crucifixion that day, his own. What a great story to be told. What drove Jesus to suffer to his passion was a deeper passion that his people, you and I, we are so disconnected from God. We're so far from God. The chasm between where we are in our, where we are in our own sin, in our own death, in our own brokenness, in our own failure, is such a gap that God breaks his heart seeing that and he'll do whatever it takes to bridge that gap to come and to meet us and to bring us over in forgiveness and in grace so that we can live forever with him it's the deep passion of his broken heart longing to be with us that drives him to a passion of giving up his own life to death even death on a cross and then to new life again on easter morning that's passion it didn't come from a mountaintop experience. It comes, it comes from a broken heart. But Nehemiah here, he sits down and he weeps for some days and he weeps for four months because he has this vision of what could be fueled by what should be. But he knows that what could be and what should be can't be until God is ready for it to be. And honestly, that's, some, that's like where we are, some of us. That's where we don't know. I got no idea. God, you've got a God-sized dream for me. I know that, but I just don't know what it is. And listen, like this is permission giving. 
to say whatever age you might be, to say my stage right now in the God-sized dream is to sit and pray and weep over all the brokenness in the world and mourn over all the sin in the world and to wait for God to give me clarity and to give me my next step. That's what Nehemiah does, and that's what God provided. Nehemiah is just sitting with his brokenness. That's it. It takes, a, it takes a toll. It takes a physical toll. It weighs on him. A color sinks out of his face. The bounce in his step is gone. It's a valley of a broken heart. And the, and the king looks at him and says, this is not like you. And so Nehemiah just fills in, yeah, you're right. I am different. I am broken. It's my people. They're hurting. They're in danger. Many have died. Many more will die unless something is done. And the king steps in. No, no. God steps in through the king and says, Nehemiah, go to your people. Build that fortification. I will give you the materials that you need. I'll give you a check to buy the things that we don't readily have, and I'll give you transportation, armored transportation, so that you don't get robbed on the journey from here to there. Nehemiah, I got you. The king says, God says, Nehemiah, I got you. And so Nehemiah, he does. And this is, this is what he does with his broken heart and with the resources. Listen, this is interesting. I went, Nehemiah said, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, seems biblical, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Hold on to that for just a minute. He didn't tell anybody. Um, then I said to them in 17, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So he, so they began this good work. They began it. Not Nehemiah began it. The people, they began this good work. In case you needed another reason of why my story isn't in, like, the Bible story, I'm not nearly as good or humble or visiony like Nehemiah is in the story. Because if it's me, and I'm guessing there's going to be some of you, if I see this project, right, God has broken my heart, and he has given me the, king, the resources of the king of Persia with a check and with the materials and with the armored transport, I'm not pulling a Nehemiah and heading into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is another pretty cool biblical illusion. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do, no, no, I'm going to head into Jerusalem with the armored transport, right? With, with the materials, like on a train all coming in, like Aladdin style when he enters that city. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you. Okay, I'm going to enter the city with one of those like novelty-sized publisher's clearinghouse kind of checks with like the balloons attached to it, right? And say, guess what, everybody? I have arrived. I'm here. But Nehemiah knows that when he's got a God-sized vision, he needs people to come alongside with it. 
Because it's such an important point because you're, you're crafting and you're thinking about what your God-sized dream might be. Is this imagination of what could be fueled by what should be. And you've got to know that a God-sized dream has to be so big and so outlandish that it scares you. Because if it doesn't scare you, it probably insults God because he has the resources to make it, to make it possible. And it's this God-sized dream that he can't do on his own. Honestly, he couldn't even do it with just the resources of the king of Persia on his side. He needed even more. Point in case, when he rolls in there, he thinks he's going to build the wall on the foundations of the previous wall. As it turned out, the three-day investigation before the initiation of the work was really important because he realized at that moment that that, that was a bad plan, that that was, in fact, fortifications that were drawn up for a city that no longer exists. It's been a long time. And so he listens to the people around, and he changes his plans in light of it. I think that's important. As we talk about God-sized dream, it's got to be so big that it relies on God to follow through on it. And number two, it involves and requires the help of the people around you. So the thing is, that heartbreak that you carry around with you, or that you're going to carry around with you, maybe it's time to consult somebody. Maybe it's time to read a book. Maybe it's time to go on a site visit. Maybe it's time to get another perspective, to do some investigation before the initiation of the work that God has called you to. I like what old proverb that said, that if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. And we're not going to let our pride, our impatience, and our fear get in the way of God putting us in community to accomplish his God-sized dream powered by God himself. So we skip down to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. He's on the wall. He's working. Day and night, they're working. But they, the they is of them, three people in particular, Sanballat, Tobiah, Gershom, doesn't, don't remember their names. That's fine. Not important. But we got these people that were scheming to harm me, Nehemiah said. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. And he said, I love this line. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent him the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. The answer being, I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. The project is too great. So what happened is that Sanballat, this guy from the north, from the Samaritan, Samaritan area, that, that treated Jerusalem like his own personal piggy bank. Anytime he needed something, he would just go and get it. He obviously had an invested interest in making sure that Jerusalem wasn't a protected, fortified city. He wanted to keep it down. And so as the walls, like, starting to, to come into place, as the materials start to, like, appear on scene, he's got a few ways of detracting this work, to try to undermine this work. He starts to spread rumors. Hey, guys, um, this is Nehemiah. He is way out of left field. Do you know this guy... Uh, this guy is outside of the will of the king of Persia, like the, the big kid on the block, like the big army. 
I mean, he's going to get Persia to come in here. No, we don't want that trouble, so we, like, we should try to stop him. Maybe some people go. When, when most people stay, he switches his gears. He tries to discourage them. The project's too big. It's been 130 years. You'll never finish it all. Nobody has ever finished it all. Nobody will ever finish it all again. It's too, it's too much, even for you, even for your God. Just give up. But Nehemiah, he keeps on it. I'm carrying on this great project, and I cannot come down. He starts to attack along with some of the other people. So Nehemiah has to split his building crew into, into like a soldier crew and a building crew. And they take shifts and they alternate. And they keep at it. Why? Because he's carrying on a great project and he cannot stop. He cannot come down. The work is too important. Sandbelt brings them this, this message and say, okay, okay, obviously we have our differences. We should resolve these things. Meet me outside. Meet me on the, on the plain of Ono. And we're going to work out a, a peace treaty. We're going to come to some kind of an understanding, some kind of a, an, an agreement. Four times the message goes out. Every time Nehemiah says, no, 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 I don't have time. I cannot come down. The work is too important. He didn't know. Nehemiah didn't know. Sanibel had planned an ambush and an assassination of Nehemiah. Because if you want to kill the snake, you have to cut off its head. And that was Nehemiah. Listen, his single... His single-minded determination to finish this project saved his life. His mantra, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot come down, saves his life and the lives of countless others. Let me, let me ask. Like, you think, you think he finished the project? The walls had been in ruins for 130 years. Nehemiah and people finish it in just 52 days. 52 days for a project that for over a century everybody thought was impossible. That's a God-sized dream. That's a vision of what could be fueled by what should be, gathered around with others to serve others, to protect others, to care for others. He's carrying on a great project, and he didn't get down until it was done. Now I'm asking, what's your great project that you're carrying on? Some of you are, are doing that debt thing, and saying no again and again and again. I just encourage you at the moment to just step out and say, no, no, it's not just no to this. It's yes to something later. That this is a great project that I am carrying on and I can't quit. I can't stop now. I can't come down now. We're going to keep pressing forward. We're going to keep moving on. Some of you have that job that I talked about. It might not be filling sandbags, but it feels a lot like it. Maybe it's loading a truck and it's just package after package, day after day. And you're like going, what's, what's the deal? Why am I even doing this? This is, this is not what God has called me to be and called me to do. This isn't the dream. This isn't the vision for my life. But behind every package and every truck that's loaded up, there's a paycheck that provides for your family. And listen, that's the vision. The packages and the truck are just ends to that vision. And you are carrying on 
a great and tremendous project by caring for those people who live under your roof. Don't come down. Don't quit. Don't give up. The work is too important. Some of you with like little kids at home and you're up at night and it's exhausting and you have no idea if it's day or night, light or dark, and it's feeding after feeding and diaper after diaper and pretty soon it's getting them ready for school and showers at night and it's just the grind day after day. This is a great project, church. And it's not just the diapers and it's not just the homework assignment. It's carrying on a great project. Don't quit. Don't quit on them. God has put this, put you in this place. You are the vision, the execution of God's vision and dream for that little one that you're caring for. It's too important. They're too important. Don't stop now. Don't give up. It's a great project that God has asked you to. Maybe you have a vision, a dream of what could be and what should be for a country that you visited a long time ago and your heart always kind of broke for the people there. You wanted them to know Jesus. You wanted them to be connected to God and they aren't yet and you don't know what to do and you're waiting and you're praying and you're mourning and you're fasting and you're waiting for God to show up through your king of Persia. Keep bringing it to God. The project is too great. Don't come down. Maybe it's for your street, for your neighbor to go across the street, to go over the fence in the backyard and to introduce them to Jesus. The one, the person in your mind keeps popping up. What can I do for them? How can I serve them? How can I make the grand introduction of them to the Savior who died so that they could live and live life to the fullest? It's a great project. Do not come down. God put only you, only you as the one to follow through on that. It's that great of a project. Don't quit. Don't stop. This stuff, it starts with a broken heart. And probably 12, 13 years ago, I was, I was in seminary. I was in pastor training school, and my heart broke because I realized that West Michigan is a very difficult culture to, to break into, especially in like the, the church world, it's, it, it can be very it can be very insular. It can be very resistant to, to change and resistant to, to people on the outside. And I could see this happening. And I could see even people even people who God was clearly and obviously working on and pulling them in to, to belong to the life of the church. And it was just it was a hard route in. And so my heart in seeing this was was starting to break. And this vision and this purpose started to develop. Like, what if there could be a church that brought people far from God to new life in Christ? What if people could come and could move from all over the country and, and find, like, a spiritual home here and could explore faith here? What if people who are already close to the heart of God could be redeployed as missionaries in their own community to be on mission together to bring people who are far from God to new life in Christ, that all of us are working. If you're far from God, we are here for you. If you're near the heart of God, let's get some work done because there's 2,791 people who don't yet know Jesus in the Fulton Heights community. Let's introduce them to Jesus by starting a new church this fall. This is our vision. And it doesn't just stop with Fulton Heights. We move on. And we continue to bring people far from God to new life in Christ. Church, a pandemic can't stop God's movement. 
This past year, when we thought, oh man, everything is done, everything is down. What are we going to do? This is God's way of saying, church, we, I have given you the greatest communicative tool in the history of humanity. Certainly the biggest one since the printing press. And you have what used it to, to email cat gifs to each other? Like, let's get going, church. Let's invest into this technology. Let's share the good news of what God has done on the cross. God's great broken heart with the whole world. And so that's what we did. And last weekend at Easter, it was, it was the coolest thing. Last weekend, somebody comes up to me and says, I just moved to Grand Rapids. I moved to this area. I don't know anybody. And I found Encounter, and I've been, I've been attending Encounter online for five months. This is my first time actually being here, and I can't wait to be on this mission with y'all. And by the way, I live in the Fulton Heights community, so it was pretty cool that they got a shout out. And I'm like, God, right? Amazing, amazing, amazing. I would love for you to join us. Join God in his mission, in his God-sized dream. You can join a team, even today on your phones. That's cool. Encounterchurch.org slash serve. Join a team. Let's bring people far from God to new life in Christ. Would you stand? And as, as we do, I want to highlight something that can be a little difficult. Uh, some of you know, if you subscribed to the weekly, that uh, this, is, this is my last Sunday physically being here on stage for a little while. I'm taking a sabbatical. It's kind of a study break to go on and to, uh, to learn more about what God's future and the specifics of that is uh, for us as a church. And, uh, and I, I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to, to share my learnings and the growth and the renewal that I have had with all of you. But it's just in this, in this moment, um, before I step aside and, uh, and allow somebody else to share God's hope for you uh, for a little while, uh, I, I want to acknowledge what to do while I'm gone. While I'm away learning and growing and discerning the will of God, our task as a church remains the same. To bring people far from God to new life in Christ. And I cannot wait to come back and to hear how God showed up in your life, what God did to accomplish that mission, even in my absence. I love this church so much. When I introduce myself to people, I often introduce myself by saying, I'm married to Kristen, I've got some kids, I've got a son who's eight, I've got a daughter who's nine, and I've got a church that's almost 11. <laughs> but the truth is, the church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't even belong to any of us. The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus, Jesus, will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's dream together about what could be. Fuel that with what should be. Holy God, we thank you for your presence and we thank you for the gift of life and life eternally. God, coming off from Easter weekend, we celebrate your resurrection and we celebrate you conquering death, conquering sin once and for all. God, we turn our lives over to you. And not just 
in some kind of an abstract spiritual sense for a hope of heaven and, and, and what comes next after death. Our, our lives and our dreams and our imaginations today. God, what do you want for us this afternoon? What do you want for us this year? What do you want from us for our lives? God, with fear and trepidation, but also hope, we pray that you break our hearts for part of this world that breaks yours. And Spirit, fuel a God-sized dream for what could be in our lives. Jesus, we pray this all in your risen name. Amen.